I'm Holly Charlebois, and I'm the Bowmanville and online site pastor. You're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's jump into our sermon this week. Hey, Sanctus, good morning. So glad that you are joining us. Again, as we're in the book of Romans, we're in Romans chapter 10. If you've got a Bible in any form, paper version or digital, would you turn there, please? Because we're going to dive back in. Now, um, chapter 10 is the continuation out of chapter 9. If you were with us last week, it was important and difficult and mind-bending and heart-changing and a lot of struggle and a lot of joy. But today, it sort of ebbs in a different direction. Let me start. One person wrote these words. He says, you know, there's a a narrative, there's a story in the mind of Western people that basically says that we come from nowhere and we're really not going anywhere. And you just get to improvise between your birth and your death. Now there's another story or narrative that's probably even stronger than this one, which is held probably by many in the West and actually many, many more outside of the West, which is also just as damaging. Many, many other people say, actually, we do come from somewhere. And we are eventually going somewhere called eternity or heaven or something else. And there is a God. And you can't actually improvise between birth and death. But you sure better be good and moral and religious. And then God might notice you, hang out with you, be pleased with you, or be with you forever. The first is basically, in some ways, the world of most atheists and secular humanists and a lot of agnostics. The other story is the majority of people on earth, the deeply religious person or the semi-religious person. And then, especially in Canada, there's all these sort of spiritual people that sort of are religious one day and then sort of agnostic or atheist on the next day, and they float between both worlds. Now, as I've shared time and time again, whether you take road one or road two, you end up actually in the same place with the same burden. You have to carry everything on your own shoulders. You're actually left with a very cruel master. You. Self-sufficiency. See, here's what Paul begins to unpack. Unless there is another way, unless we're not only reminded that there is another way, and we begin to remind the world by our personal walk and our words and, and actually share with them this other way, unless we choose to invite people into spaces and places of guaranteed meeting between them and the author of this other way, how will anyone know? And all this comes together in Romans chapter 10. Now, like I shared, we discovered last week, chapter 9 is powerful and it's clear about God's role in salvation, both to the whole church as a community and to us as individuals. Salvation, we found it, is a God thing. God elects us. God calls us. God predestined us. He, He gives us faith. He gives us the ability to see Jesus. He gives us salvation. He basically raises human beings from spiritual death to life. Dead people cannot make themselves alive. God does. But then we come to chapter 10, and now it moves from the role of God to the role of human responsibility. In other words, from the sovereignty of God now to human action, that little tension that everyone understands and agrees with, right? One person years ago during actually the Victorian era asked a very famous preacher, how do I reconcile sovereignty and free will? And his answer was so good and so helpful and so informative. He says, I don't need to reconcile friends. See, he got it right. See, neither position 
ceases to be true because we can't handle the paradox. Paul, as we've been discovering, is really serious. He's crying out, unless God acts, unless God calls, unless God elects, unless God brings people back from the dead, they will never come. And yet also, Paul's about to say, if someone never hears the good news, unless it's shared, then there's only darkness. Now, never forget, Paul's unpacking a deeply personal struggle. And it started last week in chapter 9. Remember, Paul is legit broken, like he's hurt, he's pained. About who? His family, his friends, his ethnic group, his fellow Jewish people, the people of God. And the question he's wrestling with is, in his time, and also in our time, why are not en masse uh, the Jewish community coming to meet Jesus as the Messiah? And yet so many non-Jewish people are meeting Jesus as the Son of God. And what do I do with this? And this caused him deep ache. Remember, Paul is an Orthodox Jew, Jew among Jews. He never lost his history. He never lost his ethnicity. He never lost his identity. He never lost his love for family. And this whole conversation about belief and unbelief in the Jewish community is a deeply personal struggle. He's talking about aunts and uncles and cousins and grand... Like, he's talking about his family and then the family. Now, okay, this is really important. Before we get back to his family conversation which, by the way, by the end of this, is going to be really helpful for all of us. We need to stop in the middle of this series. We need to pause and remind ourselves of everything that we've learned in Romans related to what is the good news, what actually is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and why do so many of Paul's family and so many of our families say no? And, and Sanctus, this is so important. Listen closely. You need to know who's called you and how you've been called before you can be commissioned to share the thing that's been given to you. In, unless the, the thing that's happened to you and the person who's called you is clear, you'll end up sharing something wrong. So let's just do the super summary. And by the way, if you're brand new, you haven't been with us for the series, maybe you're spiritual or you're religious or you're secular and you're checking out church, this is a great moment because I'm going to do a super summary of basically what the Christian gospel is, the good news. So we start in Romans 2. Listen to this all-consuming declaration that moves again, removes the power of history and race and religion, everything. Paul simply said in one line, this very revolutionary statement, Romans 2.11, God does not show favoritism. Whoa. Remember, originally... Paul's trying to get his family, the Jewish audience, to respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And this requires that he helps them first sense their need for the gospel, a need that most of them did not think actually they needed because they were religious. And by their personal activities and by their ethnicity and their history, God had already forgiven them of their sin problem. But it's the same for everyone. Our intelligence, our position, our many acts of kindness, our religiosity, our thoughts. I like I'm spiritual. I give so much to others. None of it moves God, Paul says. Wealth, power, position, race, color, nationality, heritage, philosophy, education, religion, or not being religious counts for nothing when it comes to reconnecting with God. Jew or non-Jew. Right believing, wrong believing. Basically, Paul says the measuring rod is the same for us, or as someone said, simply put, God will deal with all of us with faultless discrimination. 
See, we automatically think, especially we who have grown up in the West, we think, oh, God doesn't have favorites. So actually, it's easier for all of us to get in. And, and Paul's like, no, actually, it makes it more difficult, not easier. We're all in more trouble, not less. Remember what he said in Romans 3.9. So what should we conclude then? Are we, he says, as Jewish people any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jewish people and non-Jewish people are all alike under sin. See, remember, he's writing to a church in ancient Rome. This church is actually mostly made up at this moment by non-Jewish people. And he doesn't want them to start thinking that he's really excited or delighted that many of the Jewish community have rejected Jesus. See, it's Paul's desire, it's Paul's will, it's his heart, and it's God's desire and God's will and God's heart that actually all people meet God through Jesus. And he is interceding and he's deeply pained that his own family has missed the one who fulfills Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament. That's why Jesus is called the King of the Jews. We've got to remember this. One person brilliantly said this. uh, And this is important that we catch this. Uh, A Jewish person's assumption of superiority at the time of Jesus or at the time of Paul over non-Jews wasn't about ego or personal boasting. They would say, listen, out of all the nations of the earth, God chose us to be his people. Surely the average Jewish person reasoned, as God's chosen people, we must be immune from God's judgment because his tolerance and his kindness always always calls him to overlook our sin. And Paul says, no. No. This is what Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, made right in God's sight, by observing the law, obeying the Ten Commandments. Rather, through the law, we become aware, conscious of sin. So this can only mean one thing. As a Jewish person, Paul writing to his own family, just because you're ethnically Jewish or you come from an ethnic group that's religious, that, that was started by God, by the way, or you possess the law, I have the Ten Commandments, or I try obeying the Ten Commandments, or, or they're in, whether it's position, performance, or possession, Paul says you cannot be saved by having the law, knowing the law, or obeying the law because we're not saved by what we do. Why not? Because human beings can't do it consistently and perfectly, and God is consistent and God is perfect. But the law, as we've discovered in this series, sure has done one thing. The law shows us what is right and wrong. The law shows us our sin. When you read the Ten Commandments, you realize how far I am as a human being from the perfectness of God. And it begins to drive people to the place that actually I might need an external Savior. I become aware of the holiness of God, the DNA of God, my ongoing sin, and if He doesn't interfere, I can't make a difference. And Paul's like, exactly. And that's why after... God confronts our sin problem. He gives us good news. You remember this in Romans 3.22. The righteousness, being made right with God, is given through faith, informed trust, in Jesus Christ to anyone who believes. There's no difference between Jews and non-Jews. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And again, just really quick, justified means legally made right before God. Grace means undeserved mercy. And redemption means literally bought out of a slave market that you can't get out of and made right. Who does this? Jesus does this. So basically, Paul at this moment has said, no matter how many religious things you do, no matter all the things you have done or not done, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your religious background, none of it covers your personal sin that you were involved in 
are involved in, or will be involved in. And then we come back to chapter 10. And this is what Paul keeps working out in chapter 10. He says, look, brothers and sisters, here's verse 1. My heart's desire, my prayer to God is for the Israelites that they might be saved. Now, okay, I want you to see Paul's love. He's literally begging, praying, interceding, weeping, standing in the gap. And what is he asking God for? He is asking for nothing less than the redemption of his own family, for his his own people. See, this heart posture, you could call it, is the needed starting place and is the missing starting place with so many of us. See, unless we're broken for people, unless we actually see every human being deeply loved by God, unless we see those that we love and also those we struggle with and those we're neutral about and those that we really don't like are not only just made in the image of God, but deeply loved by God, but lost without Jesus, we're going to never be moved to share anything. See, Paul zeroes in on the problem with his own family. And he says it with such grace and such truth. He says, listen, I can testify about my family, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. And I'll just add, he'd say, because I was used to be the best of them. This, by the way, is one of the most amazing descriptions in the whole Bible of human beings. He says, look, my Jewish family, deeply religious, good people trying their best to obey God. They would put most of us sitting at Sanctus Church to shame. They probably gave more financially. They fasted more. They read their Old Testament more. They were all in. They were doing pilgrimages and they were doing Sabbath every week. Now, all of those acts of worship are great after you meet God personally through the work of Jesus, but not before. See, being religious or being really good or obeying lots or being zealous does not save you. See, okay, here's the difficult implication. There are billions of people as I'm recording this message right now, I mean right now at this moment, that are deeply faithful and they are really, really good people. Religious, kind, they help the poor, they're they're good parents, they're good friends, they're amazing neighbors, they're faithful to their faith, they could be Christian in name only, they could be Muslim or Hindu or Wiccans or Sikhs or Buddhists or Zoroastrians or Orthodox Jews and they pray well and they give well and they bless and they meditate and they read holy books and they deny themselves and they have all these experiences and there are secular versions of this too, I'm good because I give to charity, I fight for minority rights, I give up my vacation to dig wells, you fill in the blank. And our honest response for we who are Christians are, I, John, I really struggle with this. I cannot believe, I deeply struggle to believe that a good, honest, sincere person who does all that amazing work is still lost in God's eyes without Jesus. Ah, okay. Here's the problem. Many, many of you actually believe sincerity equals salvation. But sincerity never equals salvation. Sincerity, even good action, doesn't replace the truth of Jesus. And the deeply honorable and the deeply religious Jewish community in Paul's day reveals the great trouble we are all in. When we trust, when our worldview teaches us, when our actions and beliefs teach us that there is some type of ladder, there's some type of scale. And if we work hard enough and do enough, then we say ourselves and God will accept us and be impressed. And and then what's so wild is religious people are full of zeal. 
They're enthusiastic. They're passionate. They're, they're full of fervor and eagerness. They're keen. And actually, so are all sorts of secular versions of this. But here's the point. It's not God-based knowledge. And when it's not God-based knowledge, no matter how sincere or passionate or excited you are, it leads you away from God. Zealous people, good zealous people, really kind zealous people are lost. And it's actually a matter of life and death. He says in verse 3, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Okay, see, here it is. They trust in what they did and who they are and where they came from, not the work of another. They trust in their own goodness, not God's goodness. They live under the idea that I'm okay, not by who I know, but what I do. And, and Paul's whole point is God's righteousness, being made right with God, is found only in one person, one place, Jesus, the righteous one. See, Jesus is God's righteousness, and when someone says to Jesus, you've got to cover me because I don't have it in me, when they have faith in Jesus, when someone believes on Jesus, then suddenly Jesus' righteousness becomes my righteousness. That's why he says in verse 4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for anyone who believes. Righteousness means I'm a sinful human being under God's wrath, separated from God, but suddenly I can be declared in right relationship legally and relationally with God because when Jesus shows up in my life, all my sin and even God's deserved wrath is diverted from me and placed on him. And now I get to know God personally, not by what I do or where I come from or how sincere I am, just because I trust in Jesus. Jesus is the culmination, the consummation, the climax. He is the whole deal related to the law. And notice, he doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills it. I love when one person said these words. Jesus achieved the demands of the law. He keeps it perfectly. Jesus fulfills the intent of the law in that he pleased the Father with his obedience. Jesus completes the purpose of the law in that he fulfilled all of its requirements. Jesus executed the covenant, the agreement of the law, in that he claimed the rewards of obedience. Jesus perfected the righteous requirements of the law in that he exceeded the expectations of the law. And Jesus terminated the need for the law in that he became the word of God to humanity. Why did Paul's family miss Jesus? Why did they say no to Jesus? Actually, here's a greater question. Why do so many good, kind, sincere people, when they hear about Jesus right now, say no to him? Because they actually miss that Jesus is God. Jesus is perfect. He fulfilled the requirements he gave. And the only way to deal with a holy God is to have someone step in who is holy. And there's only one who's ever been holy once in history, and that's Jesus. And if you don't believe that, of course, you won't trust him. You won't place your life in his hands because you'll keep placing your life in your hands or in another religious leader's hands or a moral system or a worldview or a philosophy. Now, Paul is still trying to work out this thing with his family. And so he's talking to them, and he says in verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that's by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Okay, he's quoting Leviticus 18 here. And if you read Leviticus 18, this is a promise to the Jewish community, saying, if you obey, you will be blessed, and the blessing will culminate in the promised land. 
if you obey. But then Paul's point is, okay, so the standard is obedience. But then he looks at his life and his family's life and all of our lives and says, but you have to do it perfectly and consistently. So here's the problem. How do you fully enter into the promised land in the ultimate sense and stay there when you cannot obey even if you want to? And he says to his own family, religious Orthodox Jews, how do you keep obeying when you can't do it perfectly or consistently? And then his answer is, you need to believe on Jesus and stop trusting in your own work, in, in, in your own activities, and then you enter the ultimate promised land. This is why he says in verse 6, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart. Okay, i got to pause there. Uh, if you're taking notes or you're like on an iPad right now and you're hi highlight, do not say in your heart. Why does this little phrase matter? Okay, this is why it matters. Paul's quote, quoting Deuteronomy 9. And you're like, so what? Okay, here's why. This is actually when Moses personally warns the people before they go into the promised land. And he's telling them, do not believe in your hearts, if you read the context. Do not believe in your hearts the lie that you got into the promised land because of who you were, or what you did, or by your strength or by your religiosity, or by your strategy, or by your military prowess. See, his point is, Moses says to the people, it was never by our own acts. It was never by our own righteousness that we enter the promised land. God, his work, his plan, his power, his mercy, his work, he's the one who's getting us in the promised land. And Paul's point is, and you want to know what the real promised land is? Way beyond some physical piece of dirt? In the New Testament, eternal life is the full-on promised land. So how do you actually get into any real promised land? How do you get eternal life? Faith alone, grace alone, Jesus alone by the calling of the Father. Now, Paul's not done. He keeps throwing this down. He keeps quoting the Old Testament. And he keeps pointing out why it's wrong to trust in anyone but who God has sent. He says, so do not say in your heart, there's that Moses thing, who's going to ascend to the heavens, that is to bring Christ down? Who will descend to the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say in the Old Testament? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your hearts. You're like, John, I'm totally confused. Okay, let me break it down. Simply stated, here's what Paul is saying. You as a human being don't need to ascend to heaven or into the world of the dead to find salvation. Remember Babel? Let's build a tower and pierce the heavens by our own activity. Don't do that. You don't need to go down to the dead. Don't consult the dead, by the way. It's not your relative. It's demons, by the way. Don't play that game. You don't go to heaven. You don't go to hell. Salvation does not belong to some super spiritual person who takes some mystical journey into the netherworld. Don't do this. Salvation does not belong either to deeply committed or religious people who try to be perfect. The gospel of Christ was and is available, accessible, and it's simple. God came for us when we could not get to him. What have we heard a time and time again? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes on Jesus will not die, but will be given promised land, eternal life. God did not send Jesus, his son, in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Jesus. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And let me add, the righteousness of God. So Paul's saying, listen, my Jewish family, and then he says, actually, no, no, listen, every person on earth. Paul's crying out from God's view, from heaven's view. God has acted. God has made himself known. His will for all people is known, and it's found in one person, in Jesus. His people and all people have no excuse for not responding. 
Now, if you want to respond and you want to have eternal life, there's no ladder. And you also don't need to... It's just done. If you want to come back to God, He's come near to you. What must you do to be saved? The answer now is simple, honest, and direct. He says, verse 8, what does it say? The Word is near to you. It's in your mouth, in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that is proclaimed. Ready? Here it is. Here's the summary of the whole Christian faith. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart, God, the Father, raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Since God is near, we can know God. Since God is near, we can understand God. And how do we respond to him? How do I be made right with him? How do I connect with him again? How do you do it? First thing, confess with your mouth. Oh, oh, this doesn't mean I'm going to say some words and it's going to be magical. And work. No, no. Lots of people say all sorts of things they don't believe. Confession means what I believe truly on in my inside, I'm saying outwardly. Okay, so what am I confessing? What do I need to believe? One, Jesus is Lord. That's the first confession of the Christian church, the first creed. Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? It means two things. One, Jesus shares the name, the nature, the holiness, the authority, the power, the majesty, and eternity of God. Why? Because he's the second person of the Trinity. He is God. When I declare Jesus is Lord, I'm declaring he is equal with the Father. I believe that. You have to believe that to be saved. Number two, Jesus is Lord. That means that Jesus is king. Yes, he's my friend. Yes, he's my brother. Yes, he's my, fra- uh, my savior. Yes, he prays for me. But he's also my master. He's also my king. And as we've learned in this series, those who truly know Jesus are willing slaves to him. So he is king and he is savior and he is God. So you want to be saved? Okay, you've got to actually confess and believe the truth about the one who's been sent. What's the second thing? You have to believe the father raised him from the dead or you're not saved. And by the way, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical event. It's not myth. Our faith, faith is rooted not in myth or hope. I hope this is true. No, it's rooted in actual history. Jesus actually lived. Jesus was crucified under Roman rule. Jesus physically died. Jesus descended to the dead. Jesus really suffered a terrible torture. His death was real. Jesus has shared the same fate of all those who have died. Yet all of this was for a purpose. It was not just a random act of violence in the back part of the Roman Empire. This wasn't the religious leaders getting the way or the Romans finally taking out another political person. This was heaven's work. This was God's plan to overcome everything that separates us. Jesus did not stay dead. Unlike every other human being that has died, he's the only one who's come back and told us what's on the other side. And he didn't die for 15 seconds on some operating table and see some light. He wasn't resuscitated. No, he was dead. One day, two day, third day. And then on the third day, he came back to life. And this is the point. We trust, we have faith, we believe in his physical resurrection. Then he says, for it is with your heart, verse 10, that you believe and you're justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you're saved. Justified means I am in right standing with God. I'm made righteous. I'm acquitted. Though I'm guilty, God through the work of Jesus declares me not guilty. And understand the power of this little word. Not I'm acquitted for a period of time. Not I'm, you know, sort of out of detention for like one period. No, 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 no. I'm put into right relationship with God 
eternally. And all my sins I've already committed, all the sins I'm going to commit knowingly or not today, and even the ones I'm going to commit in the future are dealt with, accounted for, and removed because Jesus has justified me. And then he says in verse 11, as the Old Testament says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Paul does it. See, Paul has been dealing with self-sufficiency, religious people, self-sufficient people, secular people. Now he reverses and says the gospel isn't just for deeply religious people, prove myself people, self-made people, in control people. Actually, lots of human beings show up and say, I can't relate to any of that. Actually, many people that I hang out with and talk to, they actually say the opposite. They just say, well, I don't think I can come to God. And even if I tried coming to God, I don't even think God would want me. I'm not lovable enough, or I'm not worthy enough, or I'm not good enough. I don't know how people think they're good enough, or, or actually I'll never be good-looking enough, or I'll never be strong enough, or economically successful. I'm weak, I'm sinful, I'm so broken, I'm so lost. I'm so... And Paul says, no, don't you understand? Anyone who wants to come will not be put to shame. It's true. Anyone, Jewish person, non-Jewish person. A religious person, spiritual person, not religious person. Good person very good person, bad person, downright evil person. Anyone who wants to know God, to be saved, to be justified, all are welcome. God has chosen out of his sovereignty to remove the power of shame, hello, and disgrace, and embarrassment, and dishonor, and humiliation, and indignation, and infamy. It's all removed. See, God promises, God's promises Remove all judgment. And so the gospel is for incredibly successful people, whether religious or not, who are involved in the sin of self-trust. And oh, by the way, the gospel is for all the other people who think they've got nothing to bring to the table and God doesn't love them. And the answer is actually everyone can come home. He says, listen, verse 12, there's no difference between Jews and non-Jews. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's it. And then, if that's true, then Paul stops. And he was doing this 2,000 years ago to the local church in Rome, but it's just as true for us here at Sanctus. Then he asks four rhetorical questions. Verse 14. How then can people call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard about? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? And, can, and how can anyone preach unless they're sent? Because as it says in the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. You know, there's a famous saying, um, I think it's from Francis of Assisi, he says, you know, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. Yeah, that's great but that doesn't lead to eternal life. You must proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, not just live it. Okay. Now, when you put chapter 9 and 10 together, you get the full picture. The sovereignty, the election, the calling of God, and then the responsibility of the church to proclaim. And in the middle, who to believe and how to believe. 
But here's, remember, why did the Holy Spirit ask us as a church to go through the book of Romans? To resurrect a Christian worldview among us so we could become healthy again, step out again, keep in step with the Spirit again, and get ready to move out again. Okay, so ready? Here's, here's how Romans 10 really helps. One, unless you know everyone's condition, you'll never act. See, here's what happens again. This undoes a wrong view of your neighbor, a wrong view of your friend, a wrong... See, human beings are lost. They're not found. They're not sick. They're spiritually dead. They're not born morally good. We're sinful. And when it comes to salvation, sincerity counts for nothing. Let me say it again. Sincerity counts for nothing. If you don't believe the human condition is that bad, you will never care about telling people about the good news of Jesus because you'll think they can find it by themselves. Do you actually believe what the scriptures teaches about us? Here's the second thing. What do we see in Paul? Unless you're broken for people. Paul was broken over his friends and family. He wasn't on Twitter, on Instagram, celebrating their unbelief and condemning them and saying how stupid you are and can't you see Jesus? He's broken. Until you see human beings deeply loved by God, yet deeply lost without Jesus, you'll never be moved to do anything. So number one, ask yourself, do you actually believe that sincerity counts for nothing? Do you actually believe human beings are that lost? Number two, are you broken for your neighbor? Think about them. I, I, pastors say this all day, oh, I'm broken for my neighbor. No, think about your neighbor right now. Put them in your mind. That aunt, that uncle, that cousin, that mom, that dad, that neighbor, that coworker. Do you see them lost? Here's the next thing. Unless you know what you believe, you'll never share right. Remember, what is Christianity? Unless you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, divine and king and savior, and that you actually believe Jesus physically rose from the dead. Like, do you actually believe this? Because, by the way, if you don't believe these things, actually you're not a Christian. And some of you are like, I'm not a Christian, no problem. But for you who call yourselves Christians, do you believe this? You actually think Jesus physically came back from the dead? Like, this is key to salvation. But then I think where chapter 10 ends is actually what's so important. Unless you or we share. We've come out of this COVID moment. Churches are rebuilding. It's amazing to see what God is doing across our community and many other churches. But I just, I want, I want to remind you, I want to invite you again to invite. Unless we invite people to church to hear the good news. Unless we choose to invite friends to Alpha and, to Alpha and sit with them as they explore the fundamentals of our faith. Unless we sit down with neighbors and friends over coffee or whatever, a good meal, a beer, and say, by the way, can I tell you the good news of Jesus? How will they know? How will your friends know? How will your parents know? Your sister, your brother, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins know? How would your enemies know? How will your neighbors know that there is a God that loves them and they're estranged from him and there's eternal consequence to this, but actually it doesn't need to be this way? So unless we share 
the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for salvation. How will they know? And see, this combines chapter 9 and 10. God calls, and we're the hands and feet of those who God uses to bring the ones he's calling. But we are out there, and we are commanded to be out there sharing the good news of Christ. Simply, literally, bringing them into environments of guaranteed encounter, like a church service, to hear the good news. And sitting over an alpha, or sharing the good news personally, we are commanded and called to go and give the good news. How beautiful it is, the feet of those who bring the good news. Remember, unless you remember your scent, you'll never go. Chapter 10 is so good because it clarifies the gospel. It does talk about human responsibility. And it invites us again to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And like I shared last week, without the burden of the results, we share, we preach, we speak, we talk about the good news. God does the calling, but we're still responsible to do the sharing. So maybe we'll end like this. One, Lord, there's a lot of people hanging out with us. Uh, on this Sunday, but beyond this Sunday in general, who are trying to really understand the Christian faith. Trying to understand, is this true? Is this historical? Is this logical? Is this viable? Is this spiritually relevant? Does this make a difference to my life? All these things. Uh, My prayer is, Father, you call them. Even as I'm speaking, call them now through your son Jesus. Holy Spirit, open their eyes. And would they now, and if you've never done this, literally, if you've never become a Christian, or you've played the game, but you <clears throat> are not a Christian, just say, I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart God has raised Jesus from the dead. I am saved because of his work. Just if you call that out and you sincerely believe it, you will encounter the living God and you will be saved. Uh, my other prayer for many of us who know Jesus, love Jesus, and have walked with him for days, months, and years is now Holy Spirit in this moment there would be new opportunities, new divine moments to share the good news of Jesus personally with people, to invite people to Alpha, to invite them to church services so they can hear the good news of Jesus in community and personally. God, would there now be a new move like a spirit of evangelism breakout across our church where the good news is proclaimed boldly. And also as we do this, some of us of course are always scared to do this, would you in the middle of all of this, Lord, just give us deep rest and faith, and no fear, because the results are still yours. Uh, May this uh, moment, as we're coming up into Easter, become an unbelievable moment of sharing the good news of Jesus. Would you call many, many uh, religious people, non-religious people, and spiritual people to meet Jesus in a personal and real way? We ask this in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. You'll find more ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you heard, be sure to hit the follow button and be notified when another episode releases. Thanks so much for tuning in. God bless you.